Today we're talking in our new studio, uh, which we've set up just for this purpose, and um, we hope that the quality of the Dhamma improves with the technique that we incorporate. So there's a whole field of psychology, almost all of Western psychology is devoted to dysfunctional types of emotional states, dysfunctional types of mental states, unhappiness and all of the problems. And there's a large amount of study, huge amounts of money gone into this too try to reduce the amount of suffering that takes place. But on the other hand, there are no descriptions on the positive side. Now, there is something recently in the last 10 or 20 years, I suppose, called positive psychology. And that positive psychology is is a new attempt to actually talk about happiness. And they have to go and study happy people. <laughs> Maybe the psychologist doesn't know what it's like to be happy. So he has to go and study some happy people. Now, of course, uh, who's how are you going to know whether somebody's happy? This is the problem with science. you got to measure happiness. You can't measure these things. Science doesn't acknowledge the reality of love, does it? You can't weigh it. You can't, you can't calibrate it. So anyway, science has a problem. The scientific approach to the mind and the heart is problematic, but it certainly is a profitable industry and there's lots of people with making good money in psychology. So Buddhism has been at this for a long time and we start right out at the highest point. And maybe this is the difference between wisdom and intelligence. There's no doubt that science and scientists have intellect and intelligence. Whereas the Buddha is often referred to as wise, having this quality of panya, wisdom. So what is the difference between these two pursuits? One is that wisdom knows what the most important thing is to use your intellect on. Aristotle is interesting. He said the only true study for man is man or human is human. The appropriate study to dwell on is humans themselves. So it's very interesting, physics and so forth, dwell on probing the farthest regions of the universe to find out where it started and how large it is and so forth. So maybe there's a misdirection in all of this. In fact, I'm sure there is. Until a physicist develops well-being and happiness, they really should not be misplacing their time with studying the origins of the universe or how the physics work. We have our priorities, and wisdom says that human well-being is the ultimate priority. Uh, of course, uh, there's other sentient beings out there, animals, etc. And addressing them, we also are concerned with their well-being, but humans can learn and they can practice emotional control and detachment. Animals basically cannot. So while Buddhism advocates kindness and non-harm towards animals, towards humans, it advocates the development and cultivation possibilities, the reflection possibilities of humans, the animal that can reflect, the animal that knows they're going to die. This is a different animal, human. So, so much time, study, and energy have been put into all of the various categories of dysfunction, and we articulate that quite well. 
And in Buddhism, we talk about that a lot too, mostly in the hindrances and the what are called the samyojanas or the fetters, the basic restrictions of freedom that we're born with. But we should spend time more talking about the positive alternative. So what is the alternative? Where do the children play? And this is one day, some 35 years ago, I was staying in a remote area and I had already been in a monastery, Zen monastery for some years, and I had walked out into the world to look for a suitable place to practice. And it wasn't apparent, so I'm, I was grasping at where should I go? And I found myself in a remote area for a period of time on the edge of a lake. And uh, one day a German mm, traveler or hippie showed up wandering around, exploring North America. We spent some time. And one of his favorite songs was Where Do the Children Play? It's a Cat Stevens song from, I don't know, 1971 or something. <laughs> and I don't think he knew why he liked the song. He just liked the song. But he was actually on his way. He had decided to go down and check out the uh, Osho's ashram, Rajneesh ashram in Oregon. Rajneesh was a guru from the late 60s, early 70s, one of the wild gurus of the time. He preached the doctrine of sort of sexual liberation and sensual liberation. He had an idea that some sort of combination of the Buddha and Zorba the Greek is what you really want. Zorba the Buddha. <laughs> anyway, a lot of people in that generation, the, the boomer generation in the time in their 20s, 30s, they were looking for something like that. They all There was something missing, drastically missing from their lives. And they wanted to know if there is a place where the children play, you know. And because, uh, of course, they, they had access to money like no other generation, and they had access to travel like no other generation. And they went out to basically have a good time, to have fun. But uh, often they found it shallow and meaningless. And they thought what they thought would be a good time turned out to be quickly disenchanting. So that's why there was a lot of spiritual movements in the 60s and 70s, and some of them very flaky. And looking back, they were pretty dismissive of it. But considering that uh, people are coming out of a culture where there was no direction, there was no clear spiritual direction, they were seeking, and uh, they didn't know where to start. They didn't know, have any discrimination. They didn't have any idea where to, to look. So they looked in uh, pretty desperate places. But you don't know that from the side. When, when you're inexperienced, you don't know that you're going in the wrong direction. And most people's judgment is that they, they can't conceive of a, of a life or a dimension without it being worldly. And at the same time, they've already been worldly, and they found the worldly stuff shallow. 
So various gurus at the time promised happiness and wonderful. And you don't have to renounce anything. You don't have to leave anything behind. You can plunge into the life. You can have a non-dual experience of freedom in the midst of the world. And you can go to your... Uh... So they, they established... The... Rajneesh had this uh, Zorba the Buddha nightclubs <laughs> where you went and danced and so forth. And this was... This was to 18-year-olds or 25-year-olds. This seemed to make a lot of sense. All of that grim stuff around religion was, it was just a bummer, you know, just a downer. But they didn't know much about it. So that's where they went to look. They all wanted to find lightness of heart and well-being in a continuous way. Humans sincerely want to be happy. There's no doubt about it. And so... They looked in these places, and you really can't find it in those places. A lot of those spiritual communities collapsed or were become dysfunctional and so forth. And so, but the, the mode of the search is genuine, and it's really just very important that you really aspire to profound well-being in this very life. But it's not found where you think it is. It's found someplace else. But there is such a place, and there is this place. So th this this uh, this phrase, this song, where do the children play? For me, it meant unconsciously for this fellow that he was looking for this well-being. And that little phrase, where do they... When we're a child, we, we move to a new neighborhood, or we want to find out where kids play. And of course... As a child, if you're alone or alienated, you don't have your friends, you're really lonely and without stimulation. And of course, it's not just as a child, it's at any age, you know. You feel alienated, lonely, not have the juice, you know, not have the full-hearted experience of life. This is, uh, this is anguish, and this is part of the human experience. Happiness comes in very small amounts. There's a story, a little parable that the Buddha talks about a man who catches drops of honey on his tongue. And at the same time, he's very near the bee's nest. And so every now and then he gets stung. And the source, both of the honey and of the sharp stings, is the same source. It comes out of the bee's nest, right? But they're, all, they're small. The bee sting is, is very painful and brief. It's a small thing. You don't lose your limbs or anything. It's just a very painful, small focus. And also the drop of honey is a very small but very sweet experience. This is the Buddha's description of ordinary life, life in the sensory world. It's little moments of sweetness, little moments of excruciating pain. And they're spread over time. There can be a long time between drops of honey and sometimes there's a long time between stings but they both come from the same source you can't have one without the other you're going to hang around the bee's nest you're going to get stung you can't just have the sweetness and you can't have too many drops in a row otherwise you lose the taste of honey it's not sweet anymore so this is the this is the world we're looking for deep satisfaction in and you're not going to find it you're only going to find little moments of sweetness and 
the stings as well. So uh, where do you find this place? This is where the spiritual practitioners play. This is where the children, the children of, of a different states of consciousness, this is, you're only going to find it in trained consciousness. You're not going to find it any other way. And it won't be at Buddha the Zorba's restaurant or a disco or any of those things. I said to them, he was quite excited to go on to this. And I, I said to him, haven't you been to a disco before? You know what a disco is, don't you? <laughs> Why would you go there? I'm sure there are a lot better discos just in Vancouver. <laughs> go there. And this really, he'd never thought of that. <laughs> so it suddenly deflated his whole interest in going to the Rajneesh commune when I realized they do it better downtown Vancouver at the discos there. The spiritual communities can't compete with that. <laughs> There's no way. So he, it deflated him. And I said to him, you know, this is, this is a profound happiness that you're looking for. And you just don't open the door to a nightclub and get it. It's just not that way. It's in the opposite direction. And it's going to require work and discipline and some restraint. But if you do that, you will find your way into this other state of consciousness. And it can be some uh, deserts to cross. And that's why people go to places that offer instant happiness. They go there because nobody wants to go out in the desert. But that's where you have to go. And the, into uncertainty and into your own determinations and, of course, into your own doubts because can you get assurance that you're going to get there and when? See, this is why all, all, these, all these popular things, they all give you a timeline. So three months, you're done. So many dollars, you're done. We're going to give you this magic training that you, so that people want that certainty and, and so forth. Buddha, unfortunately, says, look, <laughs> this could take lifetimes, <laughs> but what else you've got to do? <laughs> he's, not, he's not trying to sell the message. There is a timeline in one of the suttas, a very famous one, near the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And he describes, after giving the sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, he says, if one would sincerely practice this in a determined way for seven years, one could possibly attain enlightenment or a few taints left, meaning either third or fourth stage of enlightenment. He says much less seven years could be six, even five, four, three, two, one, even seven days. It could be as low as seven days one could attain it. Of course, and you see people at the time of the Buddha attaining enlightenment within a week or a month. However, some did not attain enlightenment in that life. They practiced for decades, did not attain it. And from the Western Christian point of view, where there's a kind of a one-life theory, if it's not done in this life, then it's never done. But from a Buddhist point of view, we have a much more expansive sort of time frame. So... We're in this samsara, and there's no way out until you accept your situation and struggle for it. And then 
that's the necessary fuel for this. You have to be mature enough human to be sick of things. There's a saying in the Tao Te Ching, the sage, the wise one, is sick of being sick. And so he is no longer sick. So you have to be, if you're not sick, you don't feel the sickness, you're probably immature. <laughs> you're, pro you're probably not listening to this be to begin with. <laughs> In the Zen temple, this Korean monk would say, when we're sitting around the table sometimes and get to know people, and he would say, I think you and you, you're, you're quite sick. <laughs> that was a compliment. <laughs> I was very sick. <laughs> that was a compliment. You have to be sick. You have to be, feel the poison of, you have to feel the existential problem. If you don't feel the existential problem, you, you just can't start. You just don't have the motivation. There's something, it's going by you. You're not listening. You don't have it. You got to feel it. And uh, your friends around you will not know or resist this kind of talk. But uh, what is it? Kierkegaard has this essay or book, Sickness Unto Death. <laughs> I like that title. Sickness Unto Death. Now that cheers me up. <laughs> so... You have to be ready to, as all the traditions say, you have to be ready to lose your life, to gain your life, right? And you can't stay with something that's half-baked and based on delusions. You have to accept the reality. You have to realize you're going to die. Everybody's going to die. There's no way out. It's pointless. <laughs> and even if you, even in the next life, it's still pointless. <laughs> and then that one after that, still pointless. All of samsara is is absurd. We're not going anywhere. We're going in circles, big, long circles. So that's the deepest level, and that's what drives you to find a, a way out. So you accept. Most people are pushing this away in their consciousness all the time. Every now and then somebody wins a lottery or something, and then they have to figure out what they're going to do now. I see all these stories. I love these stories. Some guy decides he's going to build a castle. He's just a, he hasn't got much money or anything. But all he's got is time. And so he spends like 16 hours a day gathering rocks and putting rocks together and building himself a castle in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Takes him, he's been at it for 45 years and somebody comes and does a newspaper story on it. Man builds castle. And, and you see this, usually they're bearded, dirty and <laughs> skinny as hell. And they've been hauling rocks around their whole life, right? So, and you have to think, why does somebody do that? It's because they couldn't think of anything else to do with their life. And that's basically what everybody, uh, you know, other people, they get trapped in a job. And then they have to go home and deal with everything. So they're pretty well exhausting themselves all day long just to make a living and just to be secure. And so they don't have time to build a castle. But if they didn't have that job, they'd, they'd probably end up building castles, doing, trying to desperately do something with their existence. But of course, that what's the point of that castle? This guy's he doesn't need a castle. He, he's not a he's not a medieval king. I mean, a medieval king needs a castle. 
You got to have all your servants and your army. That's why they build those castles, you know. To build a castle when you don't, when you're not a medieval king, is an absurd thing. But it, and why does he decide to build a castle? It's because it'll take his life. It'll take all of his life, and he won't have to think of anything new to do. So this is you're going to end up in existential absurdity if you don't take up the path. And this is the other, this is the alternative, and there isn't another alternative. So this process of the mind is much, much better than building these castles. It goes somewhere. Even in the level of the neighborhood of samadhi, you will find existential relief. You'll find your thirst, your dilemma, or the unconscious avoidance of these things will subside. And it's the only place it'll subside. It won't ever subside in that nightclub. You will be, for a time, your the deeper drives and so forth will be in suspension. And that is the taste. That's what the Buddha says. That's one of the fruits of the path. And it's not to be dismissed. Some schools kind of dismiss samadhi as not important, but it's very important. It's one of the fruits of the path. The Buddha celebrates it. And he says, this is temporary nibbana. Temporary nibbana. That sounds good. It's not the final nibbana, but it's what nibbana will feel like. It's free from the existential drives and confusion, lost in the funhouse. It's you're now in a satisfactory place. You're perfectly at ease. And this is so important. If one can aim for this, arrange the preliminaries and the causes for this, then you won't need to listen to any more Dhamma talks. Long, boring Dhamma talks from old monks. You won't have to listen to it anymore. No more torture. From <laughs> you, will, you will know where you're going. You will have been there. You'll have visited that. Now you won't need any more maps or guides or anything like that. You will know that. And that is, this, this is where the, the children play. And believe me, it's really very, very, lots of fun. Lots of fun there. And so if you don't want to endlessly spend your time reading about every possible way to be unhappy, just find your way to an experience, even a temporary experience of this happiness. Not of the world, not of the senses, outside of the senses. Happiness outside of the senses. In the samadhi, the perfect, beautiful balance of the mind is where it's found and then you'll have a taste of this. And then you will be highly motivated. You will want to keep returning again and again to this. And in order to return, you will have to maintain your mindful, that which got you there. And what gets you there is virtuous behavior, clarity of thought, expansiveness of heart in terms of generosity and kindness. And then these preliminary causes have been put in. And you will maintain those preliminary causes because you won't like it when you lose it. The thing about samadhi is you can lose it. You can regress. You can go backwards. So it's very, very important. 
to be to be it's very important to be attached to samadhi regarding it as a precious thing like a newborn baby you're very very careful with these things it's delicate and it needs to be guarded so if you get if you get in the vicinity of this positive beautiful condition of balance you have to guard it it's so important to guard it and this is called guarding the senses the monks still have to go off an alms round through the local village and there's all kinds of strange stuff happening there but maybe you got some samadhi in the morning in the early morning you're sitting at four o'clock in the morning you're sitting there in the silence the night of the jungle you get your samadhi it's so beautiful but now you got to eat now you have to walk barefoot through the nearest village to get some food if you get uh, distracted with the sights and the sounds and the smells of the village, then you're going to lose your samadhi. So the Buddha is saying, guard your senses, monks. Guard your senses as you go through there. Keep your eyes down. Don't listen to things. Don't pay attention to the smells. It's not a grim denial of things. It's because you're trying to protect something that's so much more beautiful than that village. That's why you do it. It's a delicate state, and it's very, very beautiful. And we don't want to regress once we get it. So all the efforts you made, you need to protect them. Because there is a possibility that you can regress, and you can lose it, and not know how to get back to it. So this is critically important that you understand the guardianship of any positive states that you get. You have to nourish and keep those things going. And then your only job after that is to deepen them. Now, this is a little bit more awkward and difficult in ordinary life, but what else do you have to do? It's terribly, terribly important. And wisdom will tell you that it's the most important thing. Your friends and your relatives around you may not understand that. They might even be quite smart, but they may not be wise enough to understand that human Happiness and well-being is the highest priority. So, see if you can find where the children play. Where do the children play?